0: My name is Matt Salus and I want to welcome you to the first week of the Shout Sobriety Program. For my regular listeners on the Intoxicated Podcast, let me explain quickly what's going on here. Um so, I have launched a six-week online uh, early sobriety program called Shout Sobriety, and part of the program is each week, everyone who, who participates gets a podcast episode to listen to, and I'm putting them out here in the public domain as a part of our Untoxicated Podcast website, and the reason we're making them public and not hiding them behind uh Uh, username and password wall is because I want people to to hear this component of the Shout Sobriety program. I want people to listen to it and think, gosh, this program is something that might just be for me. And then when they register, it's first of all, it's a free program. Um, We don't believe that anyone should have to pay for their sobriety. So we're offering this program for free um, and then we're trying to raise money to keep it going and to sustain it uh, as kind of a charitable thing as a nonprofit, but for participants, for people to take the program, it's free. So if somebody stumbles across this podcast episode and listens to it and says, gosh, this program sounds like it's something that might be for me, all they need to do is, is go to our um, shoutsobriety.com or shoutsobriety.org website and register for the program, and we'll get them going. Um, So, yeah, that's the reason that intoxicated podcast listeners might be stumbling upon this particular uh, segment. It's designed for for Shout Sobriety people for week one, Um, but I want anyone to be able to hear it, and if they're interested, come and join us. Um, Let's talk a a little bit about um, why this program exists, the Shout Sobriety program exists, why we've put it together. When I decided it was finally time for me to get permanently sober uh, two and a half years ago. This is what I needed, and this did not exist. So having gone through what I went through, uh, learned the lessons I learned, um, found the things that would work for me to create long-lasting sobriety, we've decided to put this together as a resource for someone else that might be in my same situation. I don't for a moment think that this program is right for everyone. Uh, There are people for whom Alcoholics Anonymous or a 30-day inpatient uh, rehab program is the right course of action. For me, those were not options. And I needed something different. And um, as we go through this Shout Sobriety program, I'm going to walk you through the things I needed. And um, perhaps there'll be something that'll work for you. Uh, Other people might not resonate with this program. There are lots of other options out, out there for them. Um, but I think for a lot of people, specifically high-functioning alcoholics, um, I think you, this just might be something that will work for you. <clears throat> Let me say a little bit about what this program is not. Shout Sobriety is absolutely not therapy. I am not a licensed therapist and I will never pretend to be. What I am is, is someone who suffered from the disease of alcoholism found a cure for myself, and now I want to share that, what worked for me with the world. Um, but I am not pretending to be a licensed therapist. This is not therapy. If that's what you need, I encourage you to seek that out, and, um, and, and I hope you find what you're looking for. Secondly, this is not a detox. Now, remember, in my particular case, I did not need um, to detox from a physical addiction to alcohol. Even at the end, even when I was at my worst in alcoholism, I was still trying anyway not to drink Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Um, So I was taking three days off every week. I did not need to have alcohol in my system at all times. For other people um, whose paths are different, they have a physical um, dependency on alcohol and they need to be medically detoxed by medical professionals. I've heard too many stories of people who have suffered from strokes because they tried to detox themselves. So this is not a replacement for um, detox. If, if you go through detox and um, whatever program you're in that started with the detox isn't working for you and you want to explore a different way to find long-term sobriety and the Shout Sobriety program can be a solution for you, that is absolutely fabulous. But you must first take care of that first step to make sure you, you end the physical dependency on alcohol. So I mentioned this This program is primarily for high functioning alcoholics but it's also for their families as well. Um, my, my family has gone through a lot through my alcoholism. Um, my wife and I have worked really hard to rebuild our relationship and I've worked really hard to understand what that means from her perspective as well as from the perspective of my parents, my sister, my children. So one of the Problems that I see. One of the biggest problems that I see about alcoholism and the reason that it's an epidemic that is growing and not, um, you know, there's there's no cure that's um, really effective at this point in bringing the numbers down and a decline in alcoholism is because it's so widely misunderstood, and it's not just misunderstood by um, people who suffer from the disease directly from the alcoholics. It's also just badly misunderstood by society in general. So families of alcoholics, um, they end up pe- with a lot of pent-up anger and resentment and a lot of blame that they place on the alcoholic. And so I offer this program not just to the person who suffers from the disease themselves but also for I think it's a great thing for families to go through to gain a better understanding of um not only how does the the disease affect the drinker but the dynamics um, to the whole family how the whole family is affected and um, through that better understanding hopefully families will be able to help their loved one get healthy and, and along the way get healthy themselves. For each of the six weeks of the Shout Sobriety program there are consistent components. Each week there'll be a reading component Lots of reading. Reading was just absolutely key to my sobriety. And so um, each week there will be reading assignments. There will be a podcast episode just like the one you're listening to right now for week one. Um, there will be a writing assignment. Um, and, and the writing is not because I want to turn everyone into professional writers about their saga. The writing is um, because it's cathartic. Because it helps people to heal. You might remember when you were a kid and you um, were studying for the spelling test in fourth grade. The teacher told you, write out the words. Don't just spell them verbally. Write them out. It helps with learning. Well, I I firmly believe that, and I believe that it helps um, with healing as well. So um, I'm a big fan of the fact that every week we'll have a writing component. Um, Nobody's going to grade you on punctuation. Um, It's all about um, the written word helping you to heal um, for whatever the topic is um, for each of the six weeks. There's also a family component for each of the six weeks because I just, I think the family dynamic is so, so crucial. Um, So each week in the Shout Sobriety program, there'll be an assignment around communicating with family. Sometimes it'll be written, sometimes it'll be verbal, sometimes it'll be talking, and sometimes it'll be listening. But the whole idea is um, for your sobriety to be successful, your family needs to be on board. Uh, I'm not suggesting that the family needs to do the work for you or needs to excuse everything that's gone poorly. I'm also not suggesting that you need to spend six weeks apologizing to your family. I don't believe that for a second. But the family needs to be involved. Um, And when I say family, I'm talking about the people closest to you. In your case, that might be might be just really close friends it might be uh, an uncle that has filled kind of a father role for you um, I use family very generically but it's it's the people that are close to you and, and they, they need to be involved and know what you're doing to try to get healthy um, there also is a, a group component to the shout sobriety program a lot of the work is individual but there we have set up a um, private, Facebook shout sobriety group that only um, includes people that have participated in the program um, and then myself and my wife and um, the nutrition expert Kelly Miller who um, helped me a lot with the nutrition piece of the program she's involved as well but that's it it's all insiders who firmly believe in the shout sobriety philosophy and it's a really great place to to ask questions to get feedback and to provide feedback. As you go along in the program and you've learned a few things, um, it's a great place for you to share what you've learned. So we want to encourage your participation in the um, Facebook private group. Uh, There is also a phone component. Each week um, everyone that participates in the program will spend time with me on the phone. Uh, The first phone call is an hour. After that, they're they're shorter phone calls. They're just check-ins. But I want to be available to, to address the hottest topics that each person has each week as we go through the program. And then there's also a text coaching component. Um, as you participate in the program, I'm going to provide you with my cell phone number and you can text me anytime, day or night. Um, if you're having if you're just if you're fighting a craving or you've got a quick question or or whatever your issue may be, um, my philosophy is that. For the, all of us in recovery, whether in the Shout Sobriety program or otherwise, all of us in recovery, we're in this together. We're in a fight for our lives and we need to support each other. And so um, I think, you know, texting um, has a place there. And uh, I want to make that available to all the participants in the program. So I want to talk today about my story. I want to tell you a little bit about. Um, how I got to the point where I was in desperate need for of help in early sobriety, and what I turned to, what solution worked for me. Um, my childhood, I, I think, is pretty typical. It, it's also um, pretty wonderful, really. Um, my uh, parents stayed married, are married today. Um, I lived with my parents and my sister, and uh, my dad uh, was successful work-wise. My mother was a wonderful stay-at-home mom. We didn't really lack for anything. Had a great uh, middle, upper-middle-class upbringing. Um, good school systems. Everything was was intact and healthy there. But the other thing that was intact was that my father and and also my grandfather. I didn't you know I didn't see my grandfather nearly as often. But both of the the role models for me, the male role models in my life, drank daily. Um, my dad is not an alcoholic. He drinks a couple of gin and tonics every night still to this day. Um, but that's something that, and, and you know, beer on the weekends, that's something I grew up with. That's something that was just a fixture in my life. And um, it has an effect. For anyone who's studied kind of how our minds work and how we develop, the impact of things that we experience in childhood is lifelong. It, it lasts forever. And so um, when I saw the way my father and grandfather delighted in the use of alcohol and used it daily, I equated that with manhood. I equated it with success. Um, drinking every evening was just what we do as happy human beings and nothing was gonna shake that out of my brain, so that's important to understand um, as kind of an early development piece for me. Um, but then lots of other things that happened outside of the family. You know, when I when I was in middle school, I lived in Kansas City, and I remember my friends and I we found a six pack of beer up in the limbs of a tree, and it was clearly hidden there by some high schooler in the neighborhood that they would come back for it on the weekend probably and and they needed to stash it for some short period of time. But we found it, and we ran off into the woods, and I think there were three of us. We each had two beers, and I just thought it was wonderful. I wasn't one of these people that um, didn't like the taste of beer originally or didn't like the way it felt. I mean, from, from word one, I was hooked. I just loved it. As my school-age years continued, um, there was a little bit of peer pressure I can remember, specifically in high school, um, you know, there'd be a party with beer, and all the cool kids would be there. And if you wanted to be a cool kid yourself, you better show up, and you better be prepared to drink. But peer pressure was really minor in in my experience. I mean, I loved the taste of alcohol, and I loved the way it felt right from the beginning. I remember my best friend Brad and I um, when we could get our hands on beer or or whatever liquor we would. I mean, our our parents both had really robust, full liquor cabinets with a lot of variety. So we would pour a little bit off of a variety of bottles and then run off into the woods and spend a few hours uh, taste testing all these different liquors. Um, But Brad and I spent a lot of time um, in high school experimenting and really just enjoying the heck out of uh, drinking and the way it made us feel. Um, Then off to college... I. You know, one of my specific memories from the beginning of college is I was a legacy at a particular fraternity because my father had been a member, and I wanted nothing to do with that fraternity because already as an incoming freshman, I knew of their reputation for cocaine use, and I just looked at that and said, oh man, I am not touching cocaine. That stuff will kill you, Um, and I sought out the fraternity on campus that was most known for beer and vodka drinking. And that's where I wanted to be because I had absolutely no fear associated with alcohol. I, I never dreamed that I could become an alcoholic. Um, the role models in my life had all celebrated the glories of alcohol, and I was going to do the same thing. And in college, I planned to do it in mass quantities. And so I found the fraternity that would would you know fit that billing. Um, when you know other other things that come to the top of mind about my experience in college. I worked at a bar my junior and senior year. Um, I, I was a Carter, a bouncer at the door until I was 21. And then once I was 21, I was a server and a bartender. And I remember that, you know, the bar would close at 3.30 in the morning. We would get out of there at 4.30 in the morning. And we would all, all the bartenders, we would all get together and watch a movie or something. And a lot of the, the people that worked there would smoke weed but I had no interest in smoking weed. I had probably done it a half dozen times and I didn't like the way it made me feel. Um, and I, frankly, I didn't understand why anyone would smoke weed when beer and liquor was available. So I would—I can remember sitting after work with this great group of people and everyone's smoking weed and watching this movie and I've got my little six pack of beer and I'm just happy as can be. And I think that speaks a little bit about Um, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds, but there are various types of alcoholics, um, various reasons that people become addicted to the substance. My my particular affliction is called opioid mimicry. And what that means is when alcohol hits my system, I get this ultra euphoric feeling. Um, Usually, especially in, in my adult days, about two and a half IPA beers in I mean, I would just be floating on air. I would feel so good. Um, so the reason that I never got really involved at all in drugs and only you know smoked weed a half dozen times is because of this opioid mim- mimicry philosophy. In other words, alcohol um, made me feel as good as opioids make other people feel. I mean, it was just transcendent. It, I, I can still... I mean, that's the thing I miss the most about drinking to this day that just unbelievable ecstasy that i would get from from drinking alcohol um so that that's that's what kept me um stuck to liquor you know no no other um no other drug was necessary for me after graduating from college um i got a sales job for a big company um i was really happy with that and one of the aspects of my life that brought me the most joy was that just like my father and grandfather before him, I became a daily drinker. Every day after work, I would come home and pour a couple of cocktails and sit on the porch and just feel like a man, feel like a successful adult who was, you know, launching his career and earning money. And uh, my now wife, she and I lived together at the time and eventually lived together as an engaged couple before getting married. Um, but I just drinking was like the the check off at the end of the list, the to do list for the day. It was a celebration of um, success in adulthood. Um, eventually, um, things started to turn. Although it took it took years, it took many years. But eventually, the drinking started to take a toll on my marriage. Um, there are really kind of three things that I would point to. Um, first of all, the daily aspect. I thought there was nothing wrong with it. That's how I was raised. That's the only thing I had ever known was drinking on a daily basis. My wife thought there was something wrong with that, even though she partied hard in college with me um, and early in our relationship was a big drinker. She didn't understand the use of alcohol on a daily basis and thought, you know, right away, right away when we when we moved away from college and started to live together, she thought there was something wrong with it. Um, eventually, the toll on our marriage um, moved you know, deeper and more serious because it was not just concern about the daily drinking, but it was concern about the excessiveness of the drinking, not necessarily throughout the week, although there were certainly some times I overdid it during the week, but more so on the weekend, just kind of binge drinking like I was still 21 years old and living in a college fraternity, and my wife was ready to be an adult and uh, was no longer interested in that lifestyle. Um, the other thing that the drinking caused as, as far as um, damaging our relationship was um, it it caused us to get in a lot of arguments. We didn't argue all the time. It wasn't constant. My life wasn't miserable. I don't want to paint. I want to be over, overly dramatic or paint this picture that didn't really exist, but we fought too often um, and the arguments were irrational. They were hurt feelings over the slightest little comment and frankly it went both ways. Um, Because of the strain that was already existing on our relationship my wife's tolerance for my antics was very low um, and I was easily uh, jaded I was easily hurt by anything she said because um, that's the changes that alcohol was making to my brain. So we argued too much at the time. I probably still thought it was a normal amount of arguing. You know, couples fight. That's natural, and I just didn't see that it was excessive. Um, but it was. Uh, my my drinking took a toll on our kids. <clears throat> I was not abusive um, verbally or physically with our kids. But it's not fair for kids to grow up with a father that's moody on Sunday nights or that's withdrawn um, and kind of hiding away in the basement. Um, It's also not fair for kids to see their parents argue. And like I said, uh, our arguments weren't constant, but they were too frequent. And it was not something that my kids should have had to deal with at a young age. So it definitely took a role on, um, on my marriage. The first time that I had a realization that I was in trouble and that I needed to stop drinking was actually 10 years before I ultimately did stop drinking. So it was about 15 years into my drinking career. My oldest child, my daughter Catherine, was five years old. My family is originally from Indiana and we attend the Indianapolis 500 every year. And age five is the first year that my wife approves our children to attend the race Um, And so Catherine was turning five, and it was her first year to go to the Indy 500. And shortly before the race, I decided I just couldn't sustain this lifestyle any longer. Something was terribly wrong. I was starting to deal with major bouts of depression. Um, And I knew that my drinking was the cause of all my pain, and I decided I needed to stop. Um, And so I went to that Indy 500 Uh, sober. I was there with a large group. Everyone else in the group was drinking. There was a huge party the night before the race. Um, I was so weak in early sobriety. I was so ignorant to what it was going to take to recover and to beat this disease. I was the epitome of white knuckling it. I just, um, I just tried to breathe every minute as the clock ticked on and tried to tried to Keep myself from drinking alcohol, and there was no, um, there was no peace, there was no serenity, there was no um, sense of satisfaction from trying to get healthy. I was just hanging on for dear life. It was, it was to this day one of the most miserable experiences. I remember when the party ended the night before the race, and everyone kind of settled into bed. You know, probably one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning, and I remember laying in bed and just thanking God that I made it through and that. Um, I could get a few hours rest before getting up in the morning and watching everyone drink again and having to suffer through, the, through race day. Um, so for, for people who've been through this, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. When you make this resolve and you decide, I've got to quit, but you don't have a plan, you don't have any tools, you don't have a strategy, and you are just hanging on for dear life. Um, so needless to say, that attempt at sobriety was unsuccessful, I lasted maybe a couple of weeks after the race, and then I started drinking again. I went through a period like most <clears throat> most drinkers that get in over their heads like I was. I went um, through a period of rules, um, and the rules changed. I mean, when I say a period, I'm talking about a decade, a decade where I would set up rules for myself, such as I'm only going to drink beer. I'm not ever going to drink hard alcohol anymore. I'm not going to drink Early in the week, like I said, at the end of my drinking career, I was trying, and most weeks I was successful in not drinking Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. So I'd have this nice little dry period before um, I played in an adult soccer league, and um, our games were on Thursdays. And after the Thursday night games, we would all go to the bar and have beers. So that was the beginning of my drinking weekend. Was Thursdays, and but I wasn't going to drink Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. That was one of the rules I had. Um, I, I tried everything. I, I did the thing where you drink a glass of water between every um, alcoholic drink. All, all that made me do, um, I still drank as much alcohol as I had. I just had to spend a lot more time in the bathroom because I peed all the time. Um, what else did I try? I tried um, never drinking on an empty stomach. For me, and I think a lot of people who, who drink heavily, a lot of times, I would just not even be interested in food. I would get a few beers in me, and we'd be in an event where there was you know, an elaborate setup of food, and I would have no interest. I, all I was interested in, in was the bar. So some of my rules included um, making sure that I never drank on an empty stomach. I also counted all alcoholics do this. Um, I can remember a period where every time I would pop the top on a beer bottle, I'd put the bottle cap in my pocket so I could keep track of how many I was I was drinking and if it was a a normal night, a a Friday night at home, um I would limit myself to 6, but if it was a if it was some special event, a neighborhood barbecue or the Indy 500 or whatever, I would say, "Oh, this is a special occasion, I can have 12." So I'd walk around with, you know, up to 12 bottle caps in my pocket. Um, so that was one of the sets of rules really all of these rules when it comes to the disease of alcoholism they're just made to be broken you would succeed sometimes I would succeed sometimes just enough to keep me coming back for more and trying again but ultimately um, alcohol always won and I would, uh, I would break my own, my own rules and, and drink um, without limits um, the, the other thing that's important to point out about my story that I think is common for almost every every person that's battled this, their story is the mental gymnastics that you go through while you debate with yourself whether or not you're actually an alcoholic. Especially if you're a high-functioning alcoholic, which just means that I held down a job. Um, in my case, I did not uh, have any legal problems. I did not have DUIs. Um, my marriage was intact. Now, my marriage was holding on by a thread. It was not healthy. Um, It was in deep trouble, but it was intact. And my finances also were intact. Did I spend way, way, way too much money over my 25-year drinking career on alcohol? Absolutely. Do I wish I had that money back? You bet. But I didn't wreck my finances. Made the mortgage payment every month. You know, put food on the table. The kids participated in activities. We took a vacation or two every year. Um, so we were high functioning in that regard. And what that does is um, it causes this just awful debate in your head as to whether or not you're actually an alcoholic. Um, you, you compare yourself. I compared myself to the, the gutter bum that um, drinks himself to sleep every night. Um, and is homeless and doesn't have two nickels to rub together or compared myself to people who couldn't hold down a job because they drank every morning or I compared myself um, to people who had multiple DUIs or had um, lost multiple relationships, weren't allowed to see their kids anymore. And when you compare yourself to people that have been through that kind of trauma, you compare favorably. So it's really easy to, to start to say, oh, my God, something is wrong. I need to deal with it. Maybe I'm an alcoholic. And then you start to make those comparisons. And, I mean, there, there's, no, there's no way you can come out of that comparison and think that you're an alcoholic. You're, you're just – you're destined to, to, to go into this area of denial. Um, often associated with alcoholism is denial and lying. And I did plenty of it, but I think it's important to understand that the lying isn't intentional. When you sit there and you think and you think and you think and you think and you spend hours contemplating whether or not you have the disease of alcoholism, and you do so by comparing yourself to others who are in worse shape, you create this belief in your head, and you believe it, you believe it wholeheartedly that you don't have a problem and that everything that you're doing is normal. And that maybe you just need to cut back a little, or you need to to come up with a new rule to help you manage your drinking. And so when you're lying to people about the seriousness of your situation, and you're lying to cover up how much you're drinking, it's not this vindictive, awful, intentional lie. You're lying because you believe it. Um, You're telling what you think is the truth. So um, the mental gymnastics period, I mean, for me, that's another thing, just like the rules that went on for 10 years. Between the time I first realized I I was in trouble at that first Indy five hundred that I described, and when I finally got permanently sober, um, it's it's nothing I would wish on my worst enemy. It's it's an awful thing to have to go through. So for the times that I tried to quit unsuccessfully, um, the the big factor, the big reason I was unsuccessful, is that I tried to to continue with my life as is, making no changes, except that I wouldn't have alcohol uh, in my body. I wouldn't have a beer in my hand when we were at the party. I wouldn't drink in the evening after work. Um, but otherwise, I was going to make no changes. And I'm here to tell you today, that's just not how it works. When it comes to permanent sobriety, everything in your life changes. Most of it for the positive. Some of it's very difficult. It it means... Um, some relationships will get better, but others will get worse, and, and some relationships will go away altogether. So it, it's not all unicorns and rainbows. It's, it's a difficult process. Is it worth it? Absolutely, 1,000% yes. I am so much better off now than I was when I was drinking. Um, but it's not the easy slam dunk that I thought it was. I would, I would sit there in the morning after drinking too much, And I would hold my head in my hands and I would say, that's it. I am not going to drink anymore. I am committed to this. Done. And that was the full extent of the work I was willing to do. Um, And so that's why my my attempts at sobriety were so unsuccessful until the final time when I committed to doing the work necessary to change my life. Now, I will say that for me... um, When I talk about the work that was necessary, I was not under any circumstances going to go to AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, nor was I going to go to a 30-day inpatient rehab. And I believed those to be the only two options for sobriety. Um, The reasons, I'll be brief, I write a lot about this, but the reasons I was not going to do those two routes The popular perception that I believed and that everyone around me that I knew of, that I had talked to about Alcoholics Anonymous believed, was that it's a bunch of sad people sitting on cold folding chairs in church basements, drinking bad coffee and smoking cigarettes and whining about their lot in life. That's what I pictured AA to be, and I wanted nothing to do with it. And there was nothing out there that was changing my perception. Um... Depictions of A in movies kind of reinforces um, that perception. And every conversation I had with people about it um, just made me feel like that was the case. Now, I am two and a half years sober. I have had hundreds of interactions with people who have been successful in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I have a totally different opinion of the program now. It's, it's still not exactly right for me. There are things about it that don't work. But I, um, I commend anyone who finds sobriety through AA. I think it's a wonderful program. Um, it's not people whining in a church basement. It's people supporting each other. It saves, It has literally saved millions of lives. I am, a, I am not a participant in AA, but I am a fan. And, but, but you have to understand where I was at the time that it was time for me to get sober. The perception that was ingrained in my head was not going to allow me to walk through those doors under any circumstances. The 30-day inpatient rehab was not an option for me because I had four kids, my wife and I owned our own business, and I simply couldn't come up with any way for me to just be absent for 30 days and have my family survive. So now, it sounds like I'm insulting my wife there. I'm confident that my wife would do whatever it takes to for my kids to survive and thrive in fact um but I, I i at the time i could not justify taking a leave of absence from my family um it it just wasn't in me so the 30-day inpatient rehab was was not an option for me so what did i do um i read i did what's what's the technical term for it is bibliotherapy. Um, and it gets no respect in the recovery community. Um, I've, I've never seen it receive any respect from, um, from people that are trained, clinical experts, therapists. Um, but it's, it is absolutely what worked for me. Um, I talk a lot about the witching hour. The witching hour is when you would normally start to drink on a daily basis. So if you drink every day like I did and you drink after work... When that time, call it 6 o'clock in the evening, would roll around, um, in early sobriety, that's when you start to twitch and sweat and your body is begging for that first drink. And so I, when that would happen, I turned to my books and I read a ton. I read a lot of memoirs from um, recovery warriors who had come before me, people who had successfully battled the disease. I read their stories. I read about... Their drinking life and it resonated with me and I would read about their successful recovery and a lot of them the successful recovery was through AA and it just totally resonated with me. It didn't make me feel like I needed to rush off to an AA meeting, but I, I just felt by reading their stories it gave me power. Um, in addition to the memoir I read some clinical books talking about how alcohol affects our bodies and our brains and that was really, really, I can't emphasize how important that was to me because I didn't understand it. Like most people in the world, I had no understanding what's actually taking place in addiction and specifically in alcoholism. One of the books that I talk a lot about that was most instrumental for me is a book by a woman named Annie Grace and it's called This Naked Mind. And it helped me understand that alcohol in any quantity is a poison. It helped me understand that I shouldn't be jealous of people that are so-called normal drinkers. I shouldn't be jealous of my dad because he can have his two gin and tonics every night and you know, not want a third or fourth or fifth like I would. Um, alcohol in any uh, quantity is doing damage to our brains and our bodies and some people just tolerate it differently than others. It, so it helped me really view alcohol as the poison that it really is and uh, it made my ability to leave alcohol behind um, much more within my grasp um, so mentioning by name that book, the other one that I want to mention by name is what I consider to be the memoir of all memoirs The um, it was written by the godmother of alcohol recovery, recovery badasses, her name is Caroline Knapp and her book is called Drinking a Love Story and it's just super well-known in recovery circles. And I've read it a dozen or so times. Um, And every time I read it, another piece of it resonates with me. And it just gives me a great deal of comfort. Not just these two books, but all of the memoirs and clinical books I read. They help me get through the temptations in the evening. Um, So this first week of Shout Sobriety is all about bibliotherapy. Understanding what it is and getting yourself established in a routine to um, read your way through the witching hour and to start to educate yourself about what alcohol really is. So um, as you go through the the lesson plan for the week, the writing, the reading, the family work that's involved, um, it's all about bibliotherapy and how to make that an important part of your life. Um, I hope it works for you. If you've listened to this podcast And you've begun some of the work and it just isn't resonating. Whatever you do, don't give up. There are all kinds of recovery warriors out there that are doing innovative and new things um, in the area of recovery. AA and 30-day inpatient rehab, they're not the only options. I hope Shout Sobriety has a place in your life, but even if it doesn't, find something that does. Don't give up. Um, Your life, your sobriety, it's so worth it. Um, I'm not not saying it's all easy and you know i don't smile my way through every day there's lots of hard times too but at the end of the day i'm healthier i'm here for my family um and i just couldn't be happier than i am with the course that i'm on so i encourage you to um to find your way to permanent sobriety as i have so that's it for um the first week podcast episode of the shout sobriety program um if, again, if you're, if you're not signed on to the program, please visit shoutsobriety.com. Uh, read about it and enroll if you so choose. Um, we'd love to have you and be a part of your, um, your life going forward. Thanks for listening.